Hi, everybody. Welcome to Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. And I'm very excited today because I'm here in my lounge room with uh, James Rain. Hi, James. Hi, Sean. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, and it's a lovely lounge room. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, it's a bit of a special event for Time to Talk. And uh, I saw James play uh, the other week at uh, the Tivoli in Brisbane and was just knocked out by the gig. And I'm so pleased that he was able to join me today to talk about um, what he's doing currently. We'll talk a bit about, uh, you know, life in general and where he's at and where he's going. But, uh, James, I've got to say, I've said this to you many times before, that band you have at the moment really are white hot. Yeah. When do you know that a band is that good? you feel it immediately when you're on stage? Yeah, uh, well, I certainly do with this band. Uh, Again, the core of it has been as it is for a long time, for quite a few years. I mean, John Watson, who plays drums, John and I, John was in Australian Crawl, so he Mm. and I have played together for, I want to say, probably 38 years or something like that. Um, And Brett Kingman, who played one of the guitar players, who a lot of people will know, I've played with him for 30. He's married to my sister, and they have, you know, they have a grown daughter. So, uh, so it's been together, but we've... Recent, when I say recently, probably in the last year or so, we've augmented it with um, two, Nikki, um, Nikki Curter and Melinda Jackson, mm. who sing, and um, Sean Johnson on keyboards. Who's and Sean's like I don't know, twenty-seven or something. So yeah, it's just a great, great band, and I'm lucky. I just look, at, I regard myself just to, to be lucky to be the singer in a great band. When I see you guys play and it's the twin guitars going, which I love. You play guitar, of course, too. I, play, I just do the sort of rhythm stuff. I sit with, sit with John. <laughs> the two backing singers and the keyboards. It kind of elevates everything, doesn't it, when you've got yeah. that many people committed to playing your songs? Yeah, it's lovely that they are. And we've got so we've got me singing, the two girls singing, and um, Brett sings and Josh, who plays the other guitar, sings. So we've got – and Andy, who plays bass, sings. So we've got sort of – I said like six singers in the band. So you can – uh, you can really, it's just, yeah, it's opened up the scope of what you can do. It was a strange thing for me the other night because I, I went to your show and uh, I kind of got there a little bit late and managed to just sort of get down the side and then there was a bit of a gap and I walked into the gap and then I was on my own so I sort of, you know, people moved to go to the bar and get drinks. So I got a little bit closer and then suddenly I'm standing like, you know, in the second or third row watching this amazing band play and... I had this really strange feeling because it wasn't nostalgic because I think with nostalgia there's sort of a pang of loss or something. Mm-hmm. It's, it was a different kind of feeling. I was watching the band. I thought, wow, I saw you and John do these songs, some of these songs, in 1983. Sure. Sons of Beaches had come out. Yep. The next EP hadn't come out. But it was a sense when you play them, there was nothing nostalgic about it. There was almost like a sense of time travel for me being there. But it feels very much in the moment. How do you pull that trick off? Because some bands can't do that. Well, it's nice of you to say. I don't know. I think I, it sounds like a cliche, but I have genuinely found something in some of those songs that I, you know, that still seem to resonate on some sort of level. I mean, we do "Daughters of the Northern Coast," for example, and that's a song. That's you know, that's an old song, but there's always something in it, and I think the band just brings something to it musically, you know, and. Because I'm always moaning to the other band people, especially the people who are newer to the band, going, oh, you know, this thing, I play this. And especially the girls, they're both going, but you, don't be stupid. This mm-hmm. is a, you know, they're, they're always really complimentary about the songs and you should, you know, you should embrace these songs. So they help me embrace them. Yeah. Because, of course, I've made, a, you know, 400 records 
of songs that don't often get an airing. Um, we occasionally put you know one or two new ones in the set just so that we can play them. But um, I honestly don't know. I think it just maybe the songs. There's some resilience in the songs or something. But just the band embrace. The band are very. They really like the music. They're always telling me they like doing it. Then they they actually tell me to sh- shut up. Yeah. John Watson will say to me, "I want to do a cover. I want to." Do, I've, over the years, I've, at times I've gone, "I just want to. I'd love to do a cover of you know insert name of song here." You know. And he'll always he'll always say to me, "Jim, Jim, why would you do that? Why would you want to do a cover when we've got you've got all these other songs that you know you could be doing?" So my point is, they're very supportive of the material. Yeah, and of supportive of me, so it, it helps me. You know, it's interesting because I have seen bands who it does feel like a nostalgia show, but with your show, it feels very, very current. Like as I said, we're in the moment. The songs feel very, very fresh. I guess too because you've always written topically about your environment, and a lot of the things you write about still feel very, very current. The landscape you write about, and I was curious when you were starting out. What Australian music kind of got you excited that you wanted to um, go and see? All of it. I right. used to love. I, I, it was almost like I didn't have any um, sort of qualitative filter. I just go if it's a if, oh it's a band. I just liked seeing a live band. And when I was a teenager, I just mm. loved. I just loved all that stuff. From when I was about eleven or twelve, I just loved pop rock music. I just loved it all. And then any chance I got as I got older as a teenager to go and see. Certainly Australian bands live. I saw a lot of overseas bands too, you know. But um, I just, you know, I was, I loved things. I loved Skyhooks. I loved the Dingoes. I loved Chain. I was old enough to see, I saw, Car- I mean, Carson, which is the band that Broderick Smith was in before the Dingoes. Um, and there was a big blues. I used to say, I was almost name one of the bands from the early, Australian bands from the early 70s. For early to mid through the 70s, I probably saw them. Live and I just love them. I mean, I used to go. And, I saw the Town Criers a couple of times. I don't know if many people remember the Town Criers, but I loved watching the Town Criers. They wouldn't have been considered a kind of cutting edge, you know, it's called underground then. Alternative was underground band. They were kind of a bit more show busy, but I just loved the fact it was live music. And I'd go and watch. Wow, what's the drummer and wow, what's this, the guitars and how they do all that. And when you're, you know, listening to people like Chain and Carson and the Dingoes and maybe Greg McCain to some degree, did that kind of give you a license to want to sing about Australia and your environment? I think, I think Greg McCain, a lot of those songs when that happened, certainly did. Yeah, I think it really did. It, it just, oh, you can say Turak Cowboy" in a song. You can say talk about Bull, and you can talk about Carlton. This is very Melbourne thing. Mm. But I think yes, it, it really um, kind of legitimised that a lot. I always remember as a kid reading you say, uh, you know, trackless tram, Bondi bound, you'd rather write about that than write about Texas, which makes complete sense. But the cultural cringe was pretty strong back then, wasn't it? Cultural cringe was pretty strong then, and I find it's very strong now, I think, but that's a whole other conversation. But, uh, yeah, there was the cultural cringe. And you would have these sort of... And there was a very big blues boom, especially in Melbourne. Sydney seemed to be a bit more... um, prog rocky or funky or something like that there was sort of more muso whereas melbourne sort of had this big blues boom so um in the sort of early 70s and i think they were singing even though i remember carson i remember some of their songs i mean they had a song called up in queensland which is just a like it was on the record on blown on their album it was um it was like you know 12 minutes long but called up in Queensland, and then they and their, their Carson Boogie was talking about sort of an Australia, had an, had Australian kind of lyrics. Um, 
but yeah, the, a lot of those blues bands were singing the, 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 all the blues classic standards. So when you first came to Queensland, was that with Australian Crawl playing live or did you come up as a tourist before that? Oh, I came up here a few times beforehand. When I was, I think when I was 17, a, a friend of mine and my then girlfriend, we drove up, her brother lived in, in Noosa. And when Noosa, when Hastings Street, Noosa was just a street and they had the camping ground at the end of the street and I think they had a couple of uh, like Queenslander houses yeah. in Hastings Street. And there might have, a couple of shops, I think there was a pizza parlour and a, something else. <laughs> I remember we went up there then and then a year later I went with another friend of mine who, who could – and I was – I think we shared the driveway. I might have just got my licence. And I actually stayed up in Noosa for um, – I got a job in the pizza parlour so I, I sort of stayed there for about a month. Um, but yeah, I came to Queensland a few times then. What was the pizza of choice back in 1970-something? The, sorry? The pizza of choice in 1970-something. Well, I think I, a lot of Hawaiian <laughs> – <laughs> but I used to make them, make Hawaiians, you know, with a ham and pineapple. <laughs> That's when ham, steak and pineapple was big too in the pubs. You, oh, really? You don't get that anymore. Ham, steak and pineapple, that was big. That was a big pub dish. You have a big renaissance for that. Yeah. And the only pub, there's a pub up on the, the hill on just behind Noosa. Yes. That was, that was going. And there were bands playing then. And, and my girlfriend, when we first went, my girlfriend's brother, his name is Barry Dummett, he had, he was a great singer. I, he, I, he may still be around, I imagine. But um, he had a band called Barry and the Rockets. It was, I think, John Lee from the Dingoes. A couple of Melbourne musicians and Sydney musicians had gone up to Noose and fallen all over the place, and they used to play with Barry because Barry was a great singer. Wow. And I remember going out to, I forget the name of it, where they used to run these, they used to have a, they run these sort of dances, and Barry would play. Barry and the Rockets is a great name for a band. Yeah. So, well, that was Barry and the Rockets, Barry Dummett. And there was some, I forget, Gavin... Wow, Gavin Anderson, I think, played guitar, who was fairly well-known in Melbourne. Did you ever consider just being a solo artist when you were a kid? and just, Or was that not part of the culture? Everybody wanted to be in a band. Yeah, I never considered myself to be a solo artist. I mean, I thought I might... Well, I thought it was... You know, when I finished school, it was like go to sort of university, which I did, and started sort of doing the sort of law arts thing. Mm. And then I sort of dropped out of university after a year and a half. And then I went to drama school, the Victorian College of the Arts. So that was possibly what I might have done or what I thought I might head towards. But I didn't have any idea. And then, But I was always, always interested in... And when we were at high school, at secondary school, I used to, we used to play music. Like the, my little group of friends, we, we all played music. Like played guitars and drums and things. And did drama school kind of equip you for um, being a frontman in a band? No, I don't think so. I think I was always just the guy that was... I played drums and sang. So we had these funny little bands. that We weren't any good. We played 12-bar blues, you know. Mm. And you do blues in E for an hour. Um, and I'd play the drums and sing and just make up words or sing, you know, old blues things. Yeah. Probably singing, you know, about Chicago. I remember uh, Ross Wilson uh, told me... I think Ross produced the first couple of Skyhooks records. He did, yep. I think he said they had the first, Greg McCain had the first two or three albums written before yep. they got signed. Yep. Was that the case with you? Did you have a massive stockpile of songs before you were signed? No, not really. I think the songs that are on that first album we had, um, we already had, and we'd been playing. We'd been playing around and playing those songs. And we had some other, we did have some other songs that, um, in fact, recently, well, recently, probably in the last year, I found an old, um, really old, because I've kept some stuff, a, a book sort of like this book, like mm -hmm. an old exercise book that had uh, <clears throat> some old lyrics in it and it had some old set lists like written in the thing like a couple of old set lists when we used to play we were terrible but um, 
and we had a song where there was a thing called Seaweed Sweet. Now, I wish I could remember what that was because I thought that's not... Even now, I thought that's not a bad title where you could do it like a, I don't know, 20-minute Seaweed Sweet. Uh, but yeah, we had more songs that were on that record, but not like three, not like Greg McCage having three albums worth. No. Yeah, right, okay. And what about now? Because you obviously put a record out the last time we did a podcast, which might be about three years ago, yeah. Toontown Lullaby. Um, did you have like a an archive of songs where you could go, okay, I've got 50 songs, I want to choose 10? Or do you tend to find yourself writing for a project? A little bit of both. I think there are, you, write, you, you just start having songs. And I now I just make a record when I've just got some songs. And now I even think it might, with streaming, I think I'd rather make an album from now and I might just put out a couple, put a couple of songs on a stream on Spotify or something. Um, but I have found, for instance, the last record, the Toontown Lullaby, there's a song on there. Um, <clears throat> God, I can't remember the name of it. I'm hopeless. But there is a song on there that I've had the chord sequence for years and years and years. It just goes round and round and round. Um, Don't you worry about a thing. I forget what it's called. Yeah. That's the, that's sort of the chorus. And I've had that sequence, that chord sequence for 25 years. And it's one of those things you pick up a guitar to play that. And I thought, well, I probably should do something with it. And sometimes you find that you have an old, there's an old, um, I mean, I, know, I remembered there are two songs that I found in the old diary that lyrics for. One's called Hang Dog and the other one's called Just Like Jimmy Buffett. Now, and I can remember how those songs go. And I, play, I was playing them by myself going, is this any good to catch? And the song Hang Dog, I thought you could probably fix this up and it could be an okay song. And I quite like the title. Mm-hmm. And just like Jimmy Buffett's kind of, it's a country, like a country song. It's kind of really daggy. You'd have to change it a lot. But, but for instance, so there are things that you forget about and you suddenly go, oh, of course there's that bit that I yeah. had yeah. 30 years ago. I guess that's an interesting concept, isn't it? Um, I interviewed Oliver Stone once who found a manuscript of a book he wrote when he was 20. Wow. And then he went back as a 50-year-old man and edited the book and reworked it. So he was kind of collaborating with himself in a way. Yep, yep. And, uh, yeah, it was an interesting exercise. And I, well, that's, that's really interesting to hear that because probably some of the ideas he had when he was 20 were really interesting mm. and probably interesting in a sort of naive way because he didn't know the rules. He just went, this is just a really interesting instinctive idea. That's interesting you mentioned the thing about not doing the rules because I guess when you were writing, starting out, you didn't... Or did, did you analyse songs or did you just write them instinctively? I just wrote them. I just, I just, it's, it just, well, I never thought about it. Mm. I never really... Con- you don't, I don't think you consciously go, I will now... I mean, I was... I remember learning basic guitar or knowing basic guitar cause, mainly because I had friends who played the guitar a lot better than I did when we were 14, 15. Mm. And so I would pick up things. As I say, I was the guy on the drum, so to speak. And uh, I would just, just by hanging around, and we'd spend a lot of time hanging around together. You just know how to play a G chord, a C yeah. chord, a G, D chord, an E minor. And I think once you know those four chords, you can pretty much cover most things. When you get the F, that's hard. First <laughs> position F, that's the, that's the stumbling block. Um, but I remember knowing those, chord, like, those sort of chords and just writing songs. Like just write, and I'm not saying they're any good, but just, in, just naturally going up. Just trying to sing things over chords. I've got a mental note to talk to you about Crawlfile because you're doing a, a tour. Yep. Uh, I, I guess Crawlfile's an anniversary. It was a compilation record that came out 1984, so I guess. So it's 40 years ago, 40 years from 2024. Wow. From next year. H- how involved were you in that compilation? 
Not at all. I would imagine so, Not yeah. I think that I didn't even, wasn't even aware of it, I don't think. And then when it, I think when I first was aware of it, I thought, oh, first of all, I didn't like the title and then I didn't like the picture on the front. So it was definitely a record company thing that was done. Yeah. Which they could. They didn't do anything illegal. They owned the rights to the masters. They can do that. Uh, so, I mean, but it's fine now. I don't care, you know. And it's, yeah, so next year, 2024, it's 40 years since it was released. Yeah, because I remember as a kid um, not buying it because everything had been on the albums previously, which was the idea. Yes. Um, there was no rarities or anything like that. I mean... Do you like the idea of uh, the streaming things now that you could literally go home this afternoon and put together your own unique James Rain compilation? Does that appeal to you, that kind of thing? Well, but, uh, yeah, I mean, well, I wouldn't put together a compilation myself. But, yeah, the fact, I mean, I have a playlist that I've put yeah. together of stuff I like. Not, it's not me, not my mm. songs, but other people's stuff. And I've got, you know, like everybody, I've got, I just add it to it now and then. And it's, it's, I could, it goes for 25 hours or something. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, see an artist like Springsteen, probably not Bruce himself, but his management team, whoever it might be, have gone, let's do Bruce's road songs. And they make a compilation of those. Yep. They'll do you know, Bruce's summer songs or songs with people's names in them. And they kind of go on and on and on. Um, well, that's a good idea. I mean, I could do that mm. and just put together a, a yeah playlist to go on something like Spotify. In fact, that's I'm going to steal that idea. <laughs> so with Crawfile, you feel you want to play... I guess you probably played most of the songs anyway. We uh, do, a lot of the songs, the hits yeah. we play. Mm. Right, as you know, we play the hits because people want to hear it, and I've done this long enough now to not to understand and know that why resist it. And I went through a period of going, oh, I want to, but I want people to know about the newer stuff, and because I always think that you know what what I'm doing now is more interesting than what I did back when I was 20 years old, you know. But uh, yeah, we do. So we do a lot of we do all the hits, anything you'd expect. But I sp- on the crawl file thing, we'll do it'll be broader. It'll be all crawl, and. Uh, you know, there's a song called Grinning Bell Hops that we never did in Australian Crawl. But I investigated that recently, knowing this tour is coming, you know, that we're going to be touring. And I thought, yeah, we could make that work. And that's not a, that's not a terrible song. Mm. And there's another one called Letter from Zimbabwe that was an awful performance by me. A terrible performance. But I figured with this band, we could probably make that much more interesting and, and probably, make, probably make it work. So we're going to try things like that. It's interesting how... As well as all the hits, obviously. Of course, yeah. My friend John O'Donnell, you would know. Yeah. Uh, he's among them. People have mentioned to me lately how much they love Sons of Beaches, that record. Okay. Uh, it's kind of curious that that one... Really? Yeah, it, it, just sort of wondering. Because I guess when it came out, the first two were such giant peaks to try and top. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of love for that record now. And I guess things like... Uh, uh, Doors on Northern Coast is on there. Yeah. And... Uh, I can't remember what else is on there. Waiting was always a song I liked. Oh, Waiting, yeah. Brad wrote that, yeah. Oh, right, okay. Brad wrote that. Because um, it was funny, yeah, he wrote that. And he's quite open about it because he heard the song, um, the Foreigner song, and he loved the Foreigner song. <laughs> Waiting for a girl like you. And he loved, he was a very romantic Brad. So he um, he loved all those kind of, we'd always you know have fun going, he liked all the soppy stuff. Yes. And he loved people like James Taylor and Paul Simon. He was great. He was a great guitar player. He was a great picking acoustic picker. Yeah, Brad was. So putting him on electric guitar, he was a little bit. I mean, he was good, but he wasn't as good on electric guitar as he was on. If you just had him sitting around in the lounge room, yes, he was always pick. He could pick up a guitar because he learned how to do picking properly. He mm-hmm. went, and, you know, when he was a kid, so he could play all that stuff beautifully. But uh, yeah, he wrote "Waiting." 
they liked the song Waiting, so he wrote a song called Waiting. <laughs> it's a totally different song, obviously. He just took the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 I like the song, so it's good that it still yeah. resonates these days. And I'm glad you're doing that tour. Um, how do you find uh, life on the road? I guess you don't really know what it's like not to be touring because you've done so much of it over your career. Well, yeah, yeah, I know, I know what it's like. What it's like, and we were talking off air about how to exist on the road. You know, keeping fit and eating right, and mm. uh, you know, not going out and getting hammered and doing all that stuff. And uh, yeah, I just we have a system and it works really well. And the with the band and we we I've got great management with through Scott Crawford. I have had for now for several years with Scott, and he's made such a difference. So we we he. You, we usually know about a year ahead what we're doing. Okay, obviously there are certain things that change or mm. things that pop up that you, you requests or offers that are made. You go, oh, that's interesting, we'll do that. But by and large, we know what we're doing a year ahead of where we are, at least. Um, so, And that's where Scott's been, apart from every, on many other levels, but that where Scott's been great. So we know how to tour it. Everybody knows what they're doing. So people's availabilities, all the simple logistic things that you really need to consider in a band you know, it makes it so much easier. And we it's a really good touring unit and we've... You know, the thing is that happens too with bands, and you know this, the longer you do it, you learn over time... It's not you weed them out, but the people, they can be... It's not just to be a great musician and a great singer and a simpatico mm. musician, but to, as a person. Mm. And, you know, you've... I've often been in situations... Like, there's, there are no... There's no one that... There's no ass, there are no arseholes in this band. Yeah. yeah. Everyone gets on really well. It's and the d- dynamic is so important. In fact, it's often the, the most important thing. Um, and this is why I think we've talked about this, why a lot of bands, the chemistry of the band mm. is what works. And you take... The, and if you see someone individually as a musician, they might not be a great musician individually, but if you took them out of that, that group, that group would not be anything like the same. Yeah. You know, it just wrecks the dynamic and the group's never the same. Yeah, it happens time and time again, doesn't, doesn't it? it? Really does. Um, I guess you look at a band like Credence, don't you? you know, yeah. That there's probably people that didn't match Foggy's expectations. They made great records. They made great records. I think because they were the sort of people that allowed John to come in and say, "You're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and, you're gonna do this. <laughs> and here are the songs," which he was great. At. Well, like their last record they made, Mardi Gras, when he said, "Okay, you all think that I'm getting all the thing. You write some. We'll all write three songs or whatever he did." Yeah. And it was no- nowhere as good. No, no, it's definitely a blip in the canon, wasn't it? Yeah. You mentioned before um, releasing songs on streaming. So are you thinking now going forward, I guess it's going back to what it was like in the 1950s, isn't it, where everything was very single-driven yep. before the LP was the thing. Yeah. You can see yourself releasing a series of singles going forward? Probably. I think that's the... Once I get back to recording, yeah, it's probably a good thing is to put a song out on mm. streaming and let it see what it does or let just let it be. Mm. And generate some interest in it. And then maybe whatever amount of time, three months, six months, nine months later, put another one out. Just keep putting things out. Just keeping it rolling. Are there things you want to do as an artist, um, like certain terrains you haven't investigated yet that you're keen to sort of try your hand at? Well, there are certain things that I'd love. I mean, I will... I have a well. I can't take credit for it. Scott Crawford takes credit. We have our record company, Reckless Records, that he and I have. That, that's us. Um, he makes all the decisions on that. I mean, I'm just the kind of silent part of it, not so silent. Seeing I've mentioned it, but I, I, my <laughs> th- dream has always been: I'd love to just be 
the kind of rhythm guitar, second guitar player, kind of sings some songs, but the kind of backup singer in, in a band. Yeah, right. I'd love to do that. Just be that the guy over there in the band, you know, not the not the main like the lead singer. You Some, want Malcolm Young maybe. Malcolm Young would be good. Yeah, maybe yeah. sing a few, sing a few, lead on a few songs, but just um, being about whether they're doing my songs or not. The other thing I wouldn't mind doing, but it's very hard. We tried it once, and it was very hard to do economically to do do some gigs where I just play all the songs that I never get to play of mine. And I've made a list of songs that I'd like to, that I could would consider doing of mine. Yeah, yeah. And I've got there's like forty plus songs I that, I re- that I could that I reckon would stand up that you could do. But the trouble is to get a band to do it. Mm. And economically, we did try it once in Sydney. We did it. We did a gig once when I released the album called James Rain, the Magnificent Few, and we did that was all a the great songs record. Thank you, thank you very much. But we did that. And we did a, a lot of the songs that we wouldn't normally... I put in, you know, Oh No Not You Again, I put in Reckless and I put in Boys Light Up and I put in a few things. But it was... But we had to advertise it as... You, it's not really what you'd expect. And it was... We had to... We sold a, a smaller place out mm. in Sydney. But it was nothing... You don't do anything like the economic thing. To, and to do it economically, you've got to pay people to do this. Yeah, of course. So it becomes expensive. And if you're not making any money, it just ends up costing you money. I know the Brewster brothers have done that um, recently where they've gone and played pubs in Adelaide where they've basically said we're doing all the Angels songs from the margins. Right. The ones they don't get to play. Yep. Because, you know, they've got so many hits that takes up the whole set list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think they found a lot of joy in doing that. I'd be great. I mean, yeah, I'd I'd love to do something like that, especially with this band. But, um, you know. I'm, and I may still. But, yeah, I'd love to just play in a band, be just one of the guys in the band and play second guitar and sing him some backup and yeah well i guess you can get your own record label you can do that well now you've got to find the people you've got to find a you've got to find the singer yeah well it could be a, a girl yes find a great girl singer um or a great guy singer or both and have a keyboard player and a bass player drummer yeah another yeah. guitar player there's your band <laughs> how important uh was it for you then and is it important for you now to have those tentacles out there overseas with your music no, not important. Right, okay. It's, it's, I, I think, look, I'm never going to have any, you know, real success overseas. And I don't care. I mean, that that opportunity came along a couple of times many years ago. Mm. And um, I lived in Los Angeles on and off for about seven years. Oh, did you? Yeah, and I had a, I had a record deal directly with Capitol Records. Wow. I was, when I was managed by Roger Davies. And he got me a record deal for two records, guaranteed, with Capitol. So I lived in, I actually lived in Roger's house with Roger. Wow. When Tina, when Tina Turner was exploding. So Roger was hardly ever there because he was all over the world with her. <clears throat> um, and I did the first two solo records were on Capital, directly to Capital, which meant it was on EMI here, but I was actually signed directly to the American Well, that's company. amazing. But it was when they had, when, um, <laughs> they'd, it was when Poison, that band Poison. Yeah. Uh, and they'd had a hit with their first album and they made their second album. And I remember going in there going to Capitol and Capitol going and they'd heard my, maybe my second record so we, we needed to have something like and it was I think they were played that song Every Rose oh terrible yeah terrible. <laughs> <laughs> shit and then and seeing the Poison guys in there I never met them but they were in there and they were playing this song and then sort of implying to me this is the kind of thing we need you, we want to get this to, and I'm going well I don't know if I can do that 
Yeah, how would you conjure that up? But they were quite keen. The first solo record they thought was going to be, they actually thought was going to work in America. They were very keen, the people at Capitol. They were chomping at the bit. And that just didn't happen, as, as often happens. So, I mean, a lot of hits on that record. Um, Fall of Rome, obviously, and Hammerhead. Did too fast was on there. Oh, of course, yes. yes. They thought they really thought they had a hit record, and they were telling me. I got taken out to lunch every day for a week before it got released. Wow! And in those days, was how many radio ads you got mm-hmm. in America? And they said we're going to get I don't know, pick a figure, 175 radio ads. We reckon, mm. and on the first week, and it came out, and I think they got 25. Oh, what? We'll give it a second week. We'll get, and then the second week came out, and they got 20, and then basically it's over. Okay, so they kind of. How does that work? Do, do they sort of stop taking you to lunch? Yes, yeah, so lunch stops. <clears throat> and you, and you, I did some interviews. I think I, there might be a, I think I might have gone on MTV or something, mm-hmm. or they, an outside broadcast of MTV, I think. So we, I did some sort of promotional stuff. But when radio didn't add it, I think they, it, they, they just lost the enthusiasm because they've got 25 other people coming along. They poisoned the new Poison album. And radio would have been king then radio as well. Radio was king. That's when radio was king. And what was the big single they wanted to push there? Was it Fall of Rome? Fall was of Rome was song. the one, right. And they, we made a video in America. We made when it, you know, I always used to make a joke about all the videos where you go out to the desert and they put a car and a girl in it. Oh, that's a great video. It's a black and white one. I like that video. And they made that and they, were, they spent good money on that thing. And, um, they were, it was all ready to go. They had the video ready for MTV and they did this and we had that. And if, you, if it works, there's a tour, you can tour with so-and-so. And, um, and then it came out and it just didn't... Just one of those things. Yeah, just one of those things, the show business. just yeah. doesn't, didn't happen. When you made that record, did you kind of feel like you were making your first album? Because um, it must have been great to start afresh with a clean slate. Because I, I yeah. assume they would have had no expectations of who you were when you had that deal with no. Roger. They had no, no expectations. They had no context of who I was. They'd heard some, the demos, because mm. I did demos of most of the songs on that. Most of the songs on that first solo record had been demoed that I did with Simon Hussey, like on a little, one of those early four-track things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and I went to America because I went to America specifically with those demos, seeing if I could get a record deal. And I thought I'll just go there and I'll just follow Nine Monos and see what happens. I was so I was so glad to get be not in the band anymore. And I had all these songs, and I thought I'll go to America, go to the source. And within two weeks, Roger, his management, had signed me. They said they were interested. Amazing. They signed me, and then they got me this deal, and I got, and that they found David Sigerson to produce it. Mm-hmm. And I made it in America. So we worked at the, I mean, I can't remember all the studios. We worked at about four or five different studios. Wow. But a lot of them because they were cheaper. There was one up in um, Laurel Canyon, I think. Not Laurel Canyon? Topanga Canyon. I remember having to drive for ages to get this. But it was a funny little studio up in the, up in the canyon. Um, but we worked at some good studios. Whether we were, uh, oh God, I can't remember the names of them. I guess then too, you know, R- Roger had been famously Sherbert's roadie. And then managed. He'd been Company Kane's roadie. Oh, wow. Okay. And then he became Sherbet's manager. Right. And I think he worked, I think he was Company Kane's roadie, then he worked for an agency right. in Sydney, which would have been, I don't know, nuclear, one of those agencies. And then he was Sherbet's manager. And then after that, he went to America. Sorry, I'll let you finish the No, no, I, I was going to say, because obviously Roger's in America, Daryl goes to America and comes back, but he's looking after Olivia Newton-John and so forth, and... Did you feel you were part of an Australian tradition trying to make an inroad there with him? No, not necessarily, funnily right. enough, because he'd finished with Olivia by then and he'd had 
he'd had the initial he was having the success with Tina right the first success and um, he's very well connected he's a really smart guy mm. really very switched on person and but but also extremely grounded never lost his Australianness and his associate Lindsay um, Lindsay Scott was also an Australian guy and he never he was really grounded they never lost I mean I'd, I'd meet you know Australian actors or singers mm. would go over to America and they'd be there for a year and they can't, they'd have an American <laughs> accent. I mean, a lot of actors probably had to yeah, because they yeah. put it on and they have to, to get work. But they'd been there for 20 years then and they were still talking like I talk, you know, we yes. talk now. Yes, And um, in fact, we used to make fun of it, you know. Um, but so Roger was having success with Tina and uh, no, I didn't feel part of it because it was very much, let's... Do it. Do this the, as an American project. Mm, mm. You signed to an American label. You record in America. We use an American producer, and David was great for me because David had just made, he just he'd made the, the record by two guys called David and David that I loved. Yes, I remember that record. A song called "Welcome to the Boomtown" was a sort of single, off, and that had had some that had gone to I think top forty in America, and that was a really cool record. And uh, David was great because he understood where I wanted to come from, and he. Found some great musicians to play on that record. The, the list of musicians to play on that record is incredible. I mean, we tried to get JJ Kale at one stage. Oh wow! And we couldn't get it. Well, you couldn't find him. Right. Or to get him, you know, he lived in a caravan on a, I don't know, farm in Oklahoma or something. Because he used to say, "We'll get JJ Kale." You get JJ Kale? I did that. Wow, really? But he got incredible people on there. Jesse Davis is on it. David Lindley's on it. Billy Payne's on it. Um, all sorts of people on it. Um, and the, anyway, I got to meet the two Davids, David Bell. But, so yes, it was a, a, a considered an American project, not an Australian, let's make a well, road here. When I hear Olivia on Hammerhead, yep. there's something that's just magic about her voice. Yep. Did you feel that in the studio when Absolutely. she laid the track down? Absolutely. What was that like? Well, again, that was David saying, we should have Olivia sing, I can't take credit for this, we should have Olivia singing and I could sort of answer, Hammerhead on Hammerhead. Her voice would be perfect. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know that what David wanted to do, his idea was he thought he could make a great record with Olivia. Olivia's at the point in her... This is David's mm. theory at that time, not mine. He thought at that point in his life and maybe her career, he could make this great, cool record with Olivia because he thought she was right for it. And he knew probably the reason he agreed to work with me, he knew that through Roger he had a connection to Olivia. I think sure. he knew he could make this record with Olivia. I don't think... He didn't end up doing anything with her, I don't think. He ended up being the pr- boss of EMI. David, oh, wow. Which I thought was amazing because he was a real rock and roll guy, you know. <laughs> um, so it was his idea. Let's get Olivia to sing on this. I go, what? You can't get Olivia. She's really famous. So said, no, no, well, let's try through Roger. And she just went, she apparently just said, yeah, I'd love to. And we, I, said, when we, I think we were, from memory, we were working in the funny little studio up in Topanga Canyon, wherever it was. Or I was up in the hills at night. I remember she drove herself up there. There's no entourage or anything. She came in. She was so lovely. And um, she sang it like that. She was so good. and well, When you think about it, of course she was. Mm. She's got this inc- an amazing singer, mm. a much better singer than I think anyone's ever given her credit for. I agree, yeah. And then she'd be in the studio going, now do you want a fifth on top of that? And we go, that's great. So she'd sing a fifth and then she'd have a harmony ideas. And she knocked it over in about an hour and then she said, thanks, guys, and off she went. <laughs> Drove herself back down that mountain. I bought those um, country records she made recently. Right. Because I didn't really know them. I knew the hits, obviously. Yeah. You know, Let Me Be and all that. And you hear things like her doing The Air That I Breathe by the Hollies. It's 
remarkable. Great singer, incredible singer. Fantastic. And then I got to know her a lot better later on because mm-hmm. um, I was friends with her niece and nephew, mm-hmm. good friends with um, with the, the Goldsmiths. And um, and then just through – I went to China for her charity when oh, we right. did all that. And then I just got to know her not really well, mm. but I got to know her well enough to sort of sit down and have, have chats. So she was actually quite amusing to me because in China she used to have this thing where – You'd all stand in a circle before we did... Because she used to walk. We'd walk the wall. Of the, and she got all these permissions to go. There's incredible parts of the um, Great Wall of China. And they were to raise money for her, for her thing, for her charity. And um, she'd have this... Every morning we'd have to stand in a circle and hold hands and sing, Got to believe we are... And, I'm, and I'd always stand as far away from... And I'd be going, I can't sing one of this. And she'd always go to me, Rain, come here. So she'd make me stand next to her because she'd make sure I sang it. Yeah, fantastic. but she was good like that. She had a great sense of humour. Yeah, what I'm saying. yeah, great song too. Yeah, it's a great song. Really great song. I mean, Xanadu is just like one of the greatest pop songs of all time. It's, it's really hard to sing that stuff. I could imagine. It. Yeah. Were you aware of her when you were a kid? I was aware of her, but I was never. I wasn't listening to Olivia Newton-John records when mm. I was younger. Mm. But um, I was obviously really aware of her. I think we all, everyone was. It's interesting. Uh, I was sort of thinking, you know, pre her going to England um, when she was on those TV shows in Melbourne. Um, it is remarkable when you think there really wouldn't be a Taylor Swift or a Shania Twain without Olivia Newton-John, would there? Because she was the one that broke country music in America and then crossed over to pop. I don't yes. know if many people did that as well as she did it. I don't think anyone did that then. Yeah. I don't think anybody. I can't think of anyone who... I'm trying to think male or female. Well, maybe... No, certainly female, I can't think of anyone. I mean, the fact she even went to England and made those country records and broke it in America is incredible. The fact, exactly. And in those times, to do that was such... It wasn't frowned on, but it was such a kind of... Mm. As a career choice, it was like, you don't do that, do you? Mm. And especially the family she came from. I'm sure they were very supportive. But, uh, yeah, she, yeah, she broke ground. She really did break ground. And, of course, you got to work with Tony Joe White later too, didn't you? Again, through Roger, because Roger managed Tony after he came to manage Tony. I don't know what that story, how that happened, but he came to manage Tony. And then it was one of those things of um, I was living in Roger's house, and Tony would come up, he'd come over to Los Angeles. And I think it was when I think Tina, I say Tina, Tina Turner, but you know, because he was Roger, you get to meet these people. And um, I think I might have my chronology wrong, but I think Tina Turner had covered some of his songs, a song called Steamy Windows that she did on one of her yes, albums. Of course, yes, she did, yes. And there was like three, maybe three or four songs of Tony's that she did. Yes. And made them hits. Certainly Steamy Windows was a hit. That was a big hit, yeah. Um, and then he was, and there was, it was one of those things where you, you I'd, not often, but at times I'd go and do writing sort of sessions with other people, which... I always find more often than not doesn't work, especially if you don't know them. Um, but I remember one of the ones I did was uh, with um, Jim Valance, and I went up to to uh, Vancouver where he lived. Jim Valance wrote a lot of those early Brian Adams songs with yeah. Brian Adams, and he had a lot of hits. And I remember going to Jim's house, and we wrote "Slave," and we wrote another song. We wrote a song called "Some People," and he was lovely. And I got really well with him. But I did try writing with other people, but anyway, back to Tony. Is that Tony was in Los Angeles? And Roger said, why don't you do some writing with Tony? And I go, he'd write with me? <laughs> and he said, yeah, well, just ask him. And he said, yeah. yeah. And Tony came, used to come over to Roger's house. And we spent 
the good best part of a week together and we wrote a couple of songs one of which i used called um, outback woman he wrote most of that i have to admit but you know i was in the room <laughs> i mean i came up with some of the lyrics but tony you should, uh, there's a demo of tony doing that song it's incredible wow and he played everything on the record he played the bass oh really wow yeah we just used an old fashioned sort of drum machine um, and then later on, when I went, the first time I went to Nashville on one of those sort of writing trips that, that you're lucky, if you're lucky enough to get sent on. And again, I was, you put, I was put with all these people. It's a publishing company thing, put with all these people I'd never met. It's like on, on Wednesday, you're working with, you know, John Smith. You're meeting at 10 o'clock and you meet John at 10 o'clock. And I'm quite shy with that stuff. And you sort of go, well, hi, John, my name's James. And um, I don't know, I've got... I've got I've got a little three chords that sound like something, and you try and write a song, and again, I got really frustrated and it wasn't working. And he'd said to me, "When you come, because he lived in Nashville, when you come, you must give me a call." Now it's one thing to say it, and it was probably a year or so later, and I'm in Nashville going, "Oh, I can't call Tony Joe White. Yeah. I can't call call him. even though I have written a song. I know him a bit because we worked together, and we had meals together." Um, you know, we'd get hungry at the end of the day. I'd say, you hungry, Tony? Yeah, I like some ribs. I mean, he really does talk like that. And I'd, I just plucked up the courage and I rang Tony and going, oh, it's just driving me nuts. So he came and picked me up in his, it's like a movie, he picked me up in his pickup truck and he drove me around Nashville and he showed me all the Nashville stars' houses. Wow. And he was telling me all these stories about it and he, oh, that's one owner, one owner's, that's one owner's, you know, one owner's, one owner Judd. And she had, no, no, so she's got, Ten buffalo, because I think one of the sort of how many it was how many head of buffalo you had, I think, and right. these country stars are buying buffalo in there for their ranches. And um, I may have this, I'm paraphrasing, but he tried to show me that's one owner's house, and there was someone else. Then we went back to his house, and he's got a little studio, and he really has got this house. It really is sort of in the woods, it's like in these woods. It's a really nice house. But we went to his little studio and his his home studio. And he's playing bits of pieces and he's, of ideas he had because he said, don't write, well, come and write with me. And um, we came up with one song. I forget the name of it. I don't think, he might have, I don't know if anyone used it. But I remember playing something and he goes, oh, no, 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 that's for Merle. Oh, wow. Like Merle, he's friends with <laughs> Merle Haggard and all these, they're his friends. Yeah. I'm going, wow, I'm living, this is living a dream. That's amazing. So, yeah, so I worked with Tony. Well, what's it like? Sorry, I'm ranting. No, no, I love all that stuff. It's fascinating. Um What's it like when people cover your songs? Well, no one really does. No one really has. I well, mean, Paul Kelly did Reckless. Yeah. And John Farnham did a version of, I think, did he do Reckless? He did Downhearted. Well, I didn't write Downhearted. Um, but he, I think he did Reckless. I think John did Reckless. Yeah, well, he, he may have done it. I think he did on a record. Right. When, it was, when he did a record of covers. He did that covers album, yeah. His, his worst-selling record. <laughs> <laughs> no. But... Um, I heard Motors Too Fast the other night. I thought, that's such an interesting song. The narrative in there, it's like a little novel, really, the way the whole thing plays out. And then I end up hearing Daryl Braithwaite did a great cover of it. Daryl does that. Yeah, Daryl does it. Um, and he does Slave sometimes in his set. But he's ch he does a different version to what we do. Oh. And I heard the Waifs did a cover of Oh No At You again. Oh, nice. Because I remember Donna, I know Donna from mm -hmm. the Waifs, and Donna sent, I remember she sent me a link to it. And they did a really nice version. I can imagine. Mm. Um, when you finished Slave, did you know that was going to be a hit? No. Do you, I, I did never you know. ever know? 
No, I right. never know. I never know. In fact, my problem is if I think something's going to be, even especially the other people's songs, I heard a song go, wow, that's amazing. That's going to be a huge hit. Usually isn't. Mm. And then I hear something that's absolutely, I go, that, what? That's just crap. It usually goes to number one. Yeah, right, right. I've just got terror. I just can't pick them. Well, when you, you kind of tapped into the zeitgeist and everything you do is a hit, um, is there, do the record company come around and go, plays everything you've got um, or do you pretty much just present an album and go this is Sirocco take it or leave it this is um, Hard Rain this is what it well, is well in those days when it was like that when there was the record companies involved um, no I think I think I vaguely remember maybe not the first two Australian Crawl records because after the first Australian Crawl record I don't think the, the perceived wisdom is oh, it's fluke they haven't got another one in them and then oh, we really? did Sirocco and we wanted to work. We wanted to sound more like, because we didn't like, nothing against David Briggs at all. David did a great job and he's, I love David and he's a great guy. And we were, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We'd never been in a studio mm. before. I didn't know what I was doing, singing. I wasn't even singing. It was like weird yelling kind of stuff. It's unlistenable, the vocals, I reckon. But, but David had to try and make, David Briggs had to make something out of this really raw band who'd never been in the studio. So he concocted this sound that at the time, and I've got to say at the time, we didn't really like when we finished. Because we didn't know what we were doing. We go, it was the first time you ever really hear yourself in the yes. studio, as you would know. Like the first time you go, oh my God, do we really sound really? And you learn all this stuff about how you've got to be really strict about, you can hear every t yeah. time shift and every time it, the guitar doesn't match the beat. You can hear it all. I mean, it's all fixable now. Just whack it in Pro Tools and you can line it all up. But then, so all that stuff became insanely obvious so the, the second record when we did Sirocco they didn't think we had another record and we wanted to sound more like ourselves because the f sound was too chintzy or poppy we thought so Sirocco is more of a representation of what the band sounded like correct much more and I you know so yeah um, so we worked with Peter Dawkins and um, but then the third I think it was the third album might have been the one where maybe the record company said we worked with Mike Chapman who mm. produced it and it might have been Mike that said, look, he'd come out, he'd been asked if he wanted to, interested in doing it. He came out to Australia and saw, came and saw a few gigs. And it was when we were pulling huge crowds, huge crowds. And he went, yeah, I'll do this. So he came up, I think he came and saw us in Queensland because he's originally from Queensland. And we're doing these big beer bars, you know, with full of people. And uh, I think he might have been from memory, he might have been going, I don't hear a single. So you've got to go, okay, we've got to try and find a single. So that would that would happen sometimes. Yeah. But record, we were usually left alone by record companies. But the second solo album I did, I think Capital didn't really hear it. Right. And that was a bit of a. That was the first time I think probably I tried. I've got, we've got to get some songs together for an album. I mean, we had a few bits. Yeah. And, and I worked a lot with Simon Hussey, writing songs then. Just because it was because he and I had written songs together, and it was an. A, a, a comfortable way of writing songs. I guess too, you know, you've had your whole life to write your first album, as everybody always says. Yeah. And then you wrote a lot of songs in a short period of time, didn't you? That sort of six or seven year period. Yeah, we did. It's, it's called The Sophomore Jinxes. The Sophomore Jinx is the second album. Right, okay. Because, yeah, you've got your whole your life to write your first album and then suddenly it's, if it, and it, and especially if it works, it's like, oh shit, we've got to write another one. We've got to come up with another one. Yeah, somebody once said to me the trick is not to make your third album second. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I guess you've got to stick to some kind of formula. I, I, I guess the white whale in your catalogue for Australian crawl fans for a while was the, in Australia at least, 
was the Semantics album because right. now they've all been re-released on vinyl in a box set, yep. but we couldn't get that for a long, long time. This was imported from America. Yes. Was that a conscious decision when you worked with Mark Opitz to change your sound? Because it, it sounds nothing like anything else in the no. canon, does it? Well, yes. Well, what, what it was was that we got to that point and we, had, we got a deal with Geffen. That's huge. I mean, Geffen's a massive label. Geffen was a big label. And David Geffen was running it. I mean, wow. we went over there and had a meet. We met with David Geffen and we met with... They wanted, but we, they were going to we would release this record. What we, what the idea was that we'd record four new songs, which were, became the EP in Australia, Semantics, and then we re-recorded six of the songs that had been, well, that we thought were the best mm. for that. We did Lakeside. I think we did Boys Light Up. Um, I can't remember now, but anyway, to Errol. And what we'd done was we Bill, who was the drummer <clears throat> up to that point in Australian Crawl, left. Um, and, uh, you know, we, 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 cause we felt it was time to, we needed to get somebody else cause the, it was holding us back a bit. We thought at the time, this is all at the time thinking mm. at the time. And, uh, <clears throat> and we wanted to work with Mark was interested in Mark had just come off the back of East and all these incredible all records, the records, Australian yeah. records he'd made. And he had that sound and, um, he was keen to do it. So we used Buzz, Bidstrip who could really play. Hmm. And what it did was what we'd, I, we'd always, I certainly had thought, if we had a drummer that kicked our ass, this band would go, it would be 10%, if not 20% better, especially live, but certainly in a recording studio. Because we were, we because we'd then been playing for quite a long time, hmm. quite a few years, we'd got better as a hmm. band. We'd got better as, and there was just this kind of push me, pull you when the drumming part of it wasn't kind of, hmm going as well as everything else was going and we were i could i was singing better i was pro- starting to try and actually sing like a proper a singer rather than being this this nasty kind of weird yelling thing that i was doing um so i used buzz and it, it just suddenly the band went Voomp, and it, we could make this great record and mark was very good mark, mark with us was good because what he did was almost by attrition he let us he kind of left us like we're going what's he's not giving us any opinions really because we go what do you think you go well what do you think what it did was it forced us to work together and forced us to come together especially me brad and simon to really come together and paul who played bass really and guy of course really come together as a band and go we've got to really pull ourselves together here if we're going to make this great record Mm. or the one for america yeah so mark was smart like that because it made us pull together and did, was there a single pull from it in America? Did they focus on anything no, particular? Know, well, then I don't know what happened because they were really keen. And we had meetings with potential managers. We met with um, Freddie DeMann, who right. was managing Madonna. Of course, yeah. I remember him playing. I remember Brad and I were the designated people who going to have these meetings. I remember Freddie DeMann playing this, these, played us some stuff by this woman, girl he'd signed. And I remember listening going, oh, this is the most awful crap. This is awful. It was Madonna. <laughs> It was huge, obviously, massive. That's I can, I can't, you know, how I can't tell. And we met with um, with Elliot Roberts, and I. Oh, going, Neil Young, of course. Yeah, we've got to go with Elliot Roberts, yeah, because he managed all the bands that I loved. But then that didn't happen. We ended up being so-called in inverted commas managed by Tommy Matola. And in fact, we had this great thing. We were playing a place called the Warren Ponds Hotel, which is out of Geelong in Melbourne. And you got to walk, go through a paddock to get to this thing. And he came to see us there. I don't know. He came with two of his guys that work with him. And I remember seeing them walking through this paddock, Tommy Matola. But then for some reason, it just stopped. Yeah, right. 
um, for some reason, suddenly it was over before it began. And I, don't, I never found out why. Isn't that interesting? I have thoughts, but, you know, it's not worth repeating because I know they're probably wrong. But uh, it just was suddenly, there was, they were really keen. They'd booked it. We were going to tour with Wang Chung. Right. And King Crimson. It was us, King Crimson and Wang Chung. So weird. That's yeah. a weird. And they were going to put us out. It was called The Triad or something through this tour. But then that suddenly was over. It all just stopped overnight. That, that uh, reinvention you guys do of, of uh, Boys Light Up is interesting. Uh, have you ever thought about putting that out when you do live? Is that the one with saxophone all over it? No, no, I'm talking about now when I see oh, you play, yeah. The, you've kind of reinvented the, 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 like as the a... dub. Yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, jo- yeah, Josh and I just do this sort of dub version. And D- Josh does this little kind of <clears throat> Michael Franti kind of thing mm. in the middle. You know, I'm sort of thinking back... A lot of stuff we're talking about was what I call the monoculture. We all kind of watched the same stuff. We all knew it was happening in sport yep. at the same time. Yep. Something like uh, Countdown for you, when you first went on there, was that like, uh, did your fortunes change overnight? Was that the one thing that did it? Um, I think it's, uh, I, I have, you, you have to be honest and say, yes, it made a huge difference. And the fact that both my arms were in plastic, we used to make a joke going, look, if this, if this band thing doesn't work, at least we'll be remembered for the guy that had his arms. <laughs> and he, they probably did it as a, as a you know, as a, a ploy, as a joke. But um, yeah, it's, Countdown made a huge difference. It, you can't deny it. Because it went everywhere. It was the ABC and in those days. It just went to, into every home all over the country. Yeah, yeah, it was remarkable, wasn't it? You know, Taylor Swift's got this thing now where she... Um, is so annoyed at her old record label, she has re-recorded all her catalogue. Right. And I can't think of many artists in history that have re-recorded songs from the past where they actually sound any better. But people tell me the Taylor stuff is pretty much spot on. Right. Um, is that something you think more artists might do in terms of reclaiming their copyrights? Um, well, I've certainly re-recorded a couple of the older songs. So mm. sometimes, because you just... It's a lot easier to manage if somebody, God forbid, shows an interest in using it for, I don't know, God forbid, even just to put in a... In a TV show, or yeah, sure, know, it's a lot easier than going through all the stuff of who the masters and this and that and that, blah blah blah. So often it's um, so I've re-recorded certainly acoustically. I've re-recorded most things acoustically, so there are acoustic versions of them. But I don't know. I could. I'm not going to go back and re-record the Australian Crawl catalogue. Yeah, or even your solo stuff. For no, the solo stuff's easy because it's just me. When we're talking about you sort of uh, going to America as a solo artist, was there a feeling of fraternity with Australian artists trying to break it at that point? Or no, was it every man for himself kind of thing? Well, I don't think there... Uh, no, I don't think it was that either. I don't think there was any kind of... Um, I didn't really... I, there wasn't anyone there that I kind of hung around with, any Australians I hung around with. Occasionally, I remember because I'm really good friends with Rick Grossman. Yeah, great guy. And I remember when the Divinals did... Were, did really well, and they'd come into they'd come into LA. So when they'd come to Los Angeles, I'd go and see go and see Rick. But I was always really close to, to Rick, and therefore I got to know Mark and Chrissy and stuff through Rick. Um, but no, I didn't really hang with. I didn't really. Know, I spent a lot of time by myself in Los Angeles. I spent a great deal of time by myself, and I didn't really know anyone. I knew um, a few people. I knew Jeff Scott, who was a guitar player, American mm. guitar player, played on the first couple of records. So I'd see Jeff, we'd hang around a bit, but um, yeah, but he was busy doing his stuff, you know. He yeah. had a family and, you know, and I was just a guy. So I didn't really spend a lot of time with anybody. Well, one last question for you. I um, got in a car the other day, there's a CD player, 
I found a CD compilation being made about 20 years ago, and it was things like Fleetwood Mac, The Eagles, um, Seals and Crofts, all those kind of things, American things. And regardless if you like the songs or not, the, they sounded so good. Right. What is it about records from that period, do you think, why they sonically sound so good? Are things more compressed these days? What is it, do you think? I don't know technically what it would be. Um, is it the thing of records because it's analogue? Is it because things were recorded on analogue gear? Yeah, maybe. So when things went to tape, yeah, they went the, the tape, I don't know, you hear all these theories. Um, they seem to breathe a lot more. There seems to be a lot, a lot more, more space in them. And I think probably because there weren't things like click tracks so people were genuinely playing so you hear the air between the mm. the, the, the instruments I don't know because it was the it's like if you listen to um, you mentioned Sinatra I mean if you listen to a song like I think one of the greatest vocals ever is him singing um, One For My Baby and One For The Road it's incredible vocal and it's just the, the equipment they like the microphones they used they still mm. use them if you because they're really expensive mm. but they these beautifully you know handmade constructed things that you can hear every breath mm. um, maybe it's so for instance something like that possibly you're just hearing the the humanness of it maybe and yeah. it's, it's on tape yeah well, James, thanks for making all those great records. Thank you, Sean. There's Thank a you lot for having of me. Them. And uh, really great to chat to you today. I look forward to doing it again sometime soon. Thank you very much.